In August 2015, former Conservative MP Harvey Proctor hit back at Operation Midland in a bombshell press conference. I am completely innocent of all these allegations. I am a homosexual. I am not a murderer. I'm not a paedophile or pederast. It was an extraordinary press conference, a very brave press conference, and I imagine various PR gurus would have said it was a dangerous press conference because it could have smoked out other accusers mm -hmm. or indeed evidence, but in fact, well, it did smoke out other accusers who we'll come on to a bit later because they were liars as well, A and B, as they were to be called. Harvey Proctor at that press conference, he revealed the names of those who had been accused involving Leon, Lord Bramall, Edward Heath, and it was an explosive press conference, but it marked really the turning point in the story, didn't it? Yes, I, I, mean, I don't have a clear recollection of what he said, but I do remember being struck at the time that when he started outlining what he'd been accused of, no doubt to the listening audience and to the audience that was actually there, it sounded more and more and more preposterous. And I think he was brave in firstly coming out about himself, but also coming out about the allegations because nobody had known really what they were up till then. I certainly didn't know. Of course it was a risky thing to do, but I think he was able to say things that any right-minded person would say, well, really, could this have ever have happened? I wasn't at that press conference because I was on a family holiday in France when it happened, mm. but when I got back to London the next week, one thing in particular really struck me, apart from the sort of who's who of individuals in the conspiracy and the common sense likelihood of that happening was a particular incident where Harvey said that Edward Heath had persuaded him not to castrate Nick with a penknife and that Harvey had given the penknife to Nick as a souvenir of the moment he was nearly mutilated. I mean you couldn't make it up, you really could not make it up and obviously my mind was cast back to the credible and true statement by Detective Superintendent Kenny MacDonald nine months earlier. It was at that stage that uh, I was given the freedom to go ahead and try and expose Operation Midland and Nick for what they were. When did you think that the tide was turning? Well, I had a slight, I've got a slightly different take on it because, of course, you probably remember at the time, Panorama was mm. making a programme yeah. which at the beginning was going to be completely different to what it turned out to be. And they'd come to me, I suppose, it may even be when Leon was alive, maybe, or maybe shortly afterwards, they were going to make this programme, but it was going to be about lots of people. And then as time went on, and they would keep in touch with me from time to time, they were beginning to say to me, and what we're actually now doing is investigating one of the allegations, which is the school one. And all the way through those conversations, because I didn't know you at the time, they were getting to say to me, this is all sounds very fishy, we can find no evidence whatsoever that the, the alleged incident outside the school happened. Because they said it is quite impossible that if something like that had happened, there would have been no press coverage. There would have been. 
And so we are now coming to the conclusion that this was a completely made-up story. And around it, they'd found various other things which came out in that documentary, that Panorama programme. But they kept on saying to me, I, we don't know whether it's ever going to be aired, we're not sure, it's being opposed by the newsroom, we just don't know. And I didn't know what it was going to be like, and in fact, watching it was quite painful, to say the least of it. So there was that little bit, and then there was your bit, where you were coming in with what you were saying, and you, I suppose you could argue, if both of you were beginning to say these incidents couldn't have taken place, particularly the road one, why didn't the police investigate? No, what did they do about the, the stories? They tried to suppress that story for, well, from I, Panorama, I, I, and they probably decided to suppress yours. They did. I mean, my campaign, so to speak, started about a month before Ooh. Alistair Jackson's very fine Panorama, panorama yeah. programme yeah. was broadcast. I know Alistair did a lot of work in, uh, mm. on that case, he and did. we came in quite late, mm. as in Panorama is already in production. But they didn't go for it until a few weeks after we started yeah, absolutely. going for it. Yeah, I mean, I was... Metropolitan Police were keen to put pressure on me or mm -hmm. place doubt in my mind uh, mm -hmm. about the credibility of Nick and me questioning mm -hmm. his credibility and the running of the operation. I had a phone call from you know, a senior Scotland Yard official mm. warning me about interfering in, in the investigation. Well, and mm. Alistair and, and Panorama... They had the same thing. They had the same thing on the day of the... Day of the broadcast, they had exactly this. That don't do it. It'll, it'll you know, prejudice the mm. investigation, etc. Mm. But, but you know, you may well argue on both of those... What were they up to? I felt it was very sinister indeed. And, um, you know, the Leveson inquiry into press mm. standards, 2011, 2012, in many ways has improved things. I really do believe that. But holding the police to account has been made so much more difficult. And that was proven with Operation Midland because I had three separate sources mm. telling me that Nick was a Walter Mitty type individual that was nothing there. And uh, I think something which really worried me about his credibility and about the Scotland Yard running of the investigation was that he had previously been to Wiltshire Police in the wake of the Jimmy Savile scandal breaking. He'd never mentioned Leon. He'd never mentioned Lord Bramall. He hadn't mentioned Ted Heath. Hmm. He hadn't mentioned Harvey Proctor. And, and suddenly he could recall who was in this conspiracy. I mean, that was so suspicious, and it was told to me by a top contact at Wiltshire Police. But I had doubts at the start, and I remember talking to people around you because I just thought, you know, the Met had said it's credible and true. It, there must be something. There must be a smidgen of evidence here. Maybe they'll find something on Harvey Proctor's computer. Maybe there's some security services filed on Leon Britton which will vindicate all this. And in the end, of course, it was far, far worse than that, wasn't it? The truth about Carl Beach. Can I ask you a little more about the Jane rape allegations, mm. Operation Vincenti, latterly under DAC Steve Rodhouse, Gold Commander of Operation Midland? as well. I'm looking at an article I wrote uh, for the Daily Mail on October the 17th, 2015. That's six weeks after I launched the campaign in the mail in relation to the VIP abuse allegations and exposing Nick. Now, it says here that Scotland Yard 
had admitted in a statement that it had refused to drop a baseless rape allegation investigation against Leon over fears of immediate and public backlash. But it's much worse than that because the police were told four times by the CPS that Leon had no case to answer. It was a case that the Met didn't want to make the final decision on. In fact, in terms of closing it, they wanted the CPS to effectively direct them and make the final decision. The third time that the CPS again rejected seeing a file on the rape allegation was in November 2014. So that was a couple of months before Leon died. But they again asked the CPS to review the file on the rape allegation in February 2015. So that's a month after Leon died. I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? I'm just reflecting on that in advance of, of this, that four times in life and death, they would not they let go. It sounds like they're determined to get to the bottom of something. There's nothing there. Was it cowardly? Well, I didn't know any of this at the time and during that year of 2014. But I suppose I'm rather shocked now because it seems to me that the weaker it gets, it seems to me, the less the police should proceed to pursue it. And I suppose now I'm pretty horrified by the fact that then, and I didn't know it at the time, that on four occasions when the seems to me the case could have been dropped completely by the police because the Crown Prosecution Service said there's no evidence, and you can't take a case. The whole point about the Crown Prosecution Service is that they will only take a case in which there is a sufficient evidence that there is a prospect of a conviction. That's the whole point of it. Mm. And if, if you, in fact, have no prospect of conviction because the evidence gets weaker and weaker, the case gets weaker and weaker, it seems to me wrong that you should carry on pursuing it. And all I can think is that there were other motives. Well, they were clearly under a lot of pressure from Tom Watson and this whole issue of political interference or perceived political interference in police investigations runs through the VIP sex abuse scandal. That is no excuse for turning on its head the presumption of innocence and making sure that everything you have, all the evidence you have, is strong and stands up on both sides. And if there's counter-evidence to the allegation and the Crown Prosecution Service refuses to take the case, it seems to me that that is not an excuse for carrying on and on with it. The CPS stance on it was as damning of the evidence in the case as could be. They said there wasn't even a file to consider. There wasn't even a file to consider. They're basically saying, yeah. don't waste our time sending this. Well, of course, all this... I didn't know about it at the time, but I then subsequently read about it in the Sir Richard Enriquez report. And all those years later, a year or two later, I must say it made pretty shocking reading that there was my husband, affectionate husband, who had to see his way through that last year with these allegations hanging over him, although he would say that, of course, they were, they were without foundation. That was the word he used. But nonetheless, he was never given the satisfaction of the fact that the case was dropped against him while he was still alive. And I wanted to ask you about that, Lady Britain. You said that he wanted to reflect on the good things in his life and his conscience was clear in his last few weeks. But I wanted to ask you, how good would it have been for him to have received a letter from DAC Rodhouse 
before his death to say, Lord Britain, you are cleared. There is no evidence, not sort of weasel words, insufficient evidence, to say there is no evidence. What would that have meant to him in his last few days? I think, although I can't say for sure, that he would have been relieved. He was absolutely certain that that's what they were going to do. It didn't happen. He didn't ask about it, I suppose, because in the way that he operated himself, when he knew that he was in the clear and he knew his conscience was clear, he didn't spend his waking hours worrying about it. But it would have been for him, and particularly for me, a real line under an extremely difficult period. And it wasn't to the summer, was it, uh, of 2015 that you learned that there was no case for him to answer? What Uh, happened was that the Independent on Sunday ran a story saying that the case had been dropped and my lawyers at the time wrote to the Metropolitan Police and said, is this story true? In which case, why have you not told our client? They then confirmed it and said that this was so. I don't know, I suppose at that particular time I... I was pleased that I suppose it had come to a conclusion, but it had come to a conclusion too late, as far as I was concerned. Nobody really understands what it's like to be under the cloud of an accusation, however much you and your friends know that it's not true. Another key figure in all this, in terms of the truth coming out, was ex-Detective Chief Inspector Paul Settle. How do you assess the role he had in terms of you getting justice and Leon being exonerated? Well, I certainly like to thank him for everything that he did, and I feel that particularly his evidence in front of the Home Affairs Select Committee, because that's really the first time I came to hear about him, was absolutely crucial in the Operation Vincenti case. And certainly I'm most grateful to the fact that he, who had been quite badly treated himself, put his head above the parapet and said all sorts of things which were, for me, not only music to my ears because it told me a lot of things that I didn't know at that time because nobody had told me. And so I would like to pay tribute for the role that he played and that what he said and what he's subsequently said has given me great comfort. In relation to Jane, uh, she had close links to Tom Watson. She was a a Labour activist. She was quite open about that, to be fair to her. She, I know, had a history of mental health problems. I'm sorry for that on a human level, uh, but she had some delusional issues in the past. She'd made false allegations in the past. Tom Watson took up her case with the DPP and sort of bounced uh, the Met into taking her allegations or reopening her allegations again, but there's nothing there. I just wondered whether you are concerned that the Met have never looked at the possibility that, like Carl Beach a.k.a. Nick, she willfully misled the police. Have I thought about it? I suppose, yes, I have. But I suppose now I've put it out of my mind. Time has passed. All I can say from my own point of view, and I don't know the ins and outs of the whole case, is that the facts that were presented in the statement which was answered by Leon in his statement were incorrect, in many respects, and as far as I know, they were never checked on by the police, I don't know, but I don't think so, to see whether or not the various facts as came out in the original statement were not true. And certainly there were three or four incidences 
which you could have argued would show that the case was not correct against Leon. Operation Midland limped on to March 2016. I mean, I was writing about the case every other week by then. Bernard Hogan Howe, who previously had refused to apologise for the inquiry, instigated an independent inquiry by the retired High Court judge, Sir Richard Enriquez. I mean, to be fair to Hogan Howe, that was a good move. Probably what he wasn't expecting was that Sir Richard would throw the book at the Met. Because <laughs> you did meet Hogan Howe, didn't you? So we met in extraordinary secrecy because it was to do with the venue for this meeting in 2016, middle of, middle of February. And, of course, it was the Goring Hotel because I refused to go there. I refused to have him back at the house because I didn't want to meet him at home. So I said we should meet on neutral ground. And that's indeed what we did. And by that time, of course, he'd said to Lord Bramwell that that was the end of the allegations against him, but using words, you know, that Lord Bramwell found very offensive, insufficient evidence and all of that, no evidence. And anyway, I had a rather tricky and difficult conversation, rather odd, actually, that entire occasion. And we had a writer of notes who came along, so I have a pretty good transcript of it, pretty accurate. But it was just a very strange meeting, and at the very end of it, I said, well, are you going to say the same about my husband as you said about Lord Bramall? To which the answer was very sort of ambivalent, saying, really, no, I can't do that because we've got new leads. This was February yeah. 2016. And then he also said something which I said, it really isn't true. He made mention, because he'd done it on radio, about the existence of the dossier. And I said, well, there was no dossier. I wish you wouldn't do that on Radio. The famous or infamous Indeed. Dickens dossier. But, but I raised that. I said, you know, there was no dossier. And, you know, I really rather find it rather offensive that you go out on air and say there was one. I just thought, all well, that was quite sloppy because there was no evidence whatsoever. What was his demeanour like? Defensive? Well, it was... I think he thought that I would lay into him, but I'm not like that. And, well, it was sort of bizarre, I think, because I perhaps wasn't in a belligerent and aggressive mood. Why would I be? You know, that isn't my style. But I just found it odd, and I think that, you know, I got slightly different versions of almost every bit of the Vincenti story from from what I'd been sent in the letters and what it was said to me on that day. So, you know, I came away saying, well, where's the truth of all of this? I mean, why did this all happen? What am I being told? And then, of course, not to be told satisfaction stuff for the Midland allegation and to go away from that meeting not knowing that it was going to come to an end in a month and feeling that there was still a cloud hanging over Leon was not an easy thing to deal with. A couple of months earlier Sir Bernard was at a Christmas party hosted by the proprietor of the Daily Mail and I bumped into him we had quite a cordial conversation I brought up Operation Midland and I was like three months into my campaign there and at Claridge's yeah, in those days you went to Claridge's for a Christmas do. <laughs> won't, won't dwell on that. But he was talking about getting a three-year extension to mm. his existing five-year contract. Mm. He was talking about the future and about how he was going to shape Scotland Yard. At that stage, I didn't get the impression that he was a man worried about his job prospects. But it was unravelling mm. very quickly. And his defence was, as 
Midland closed, it started to emerge more officially, so we say, just how bad Operation Midland under Steve Rodhouse was. So he's a commissioner, and uh, he's got so many responsibilities as head of the force that he can't micromanage that investigation. And so I disagree with that, and I wonder what your view was, because whenever had there been a triple murder inquiry in the Met, which ran for 16 months, cost £3 million, and involved a former Prime Minister, allegedly, former Home Secretary, allegedly, former Head of the Armed Forces, allegedly, blah, blah, blah. I would have thought that he should have been all over it in a very quizzical way. What's your view? I think if I take the analogy of a, a top politician, there are various ways in which you can involve yourself in things that you need to know and things you perhaps don't want to know. And I think that there may have been a little bit in all of this is I know about this, but I don't want to know. And I only want to be told when there's something catastrophic. I mean, you, you could argue that that's on the good side. On the less good side was that perhaps an investigation as high profile as this in the establishment, which is it is very high profile, should have been weekly, 10 daily monthly meetings about this and exactly what was going on and where was the evidence and where was it going. I mean, it's very difficult to tell. I would never say that it was a dereliction of duty because I think if you are running a big operation, and it is a big operation, there are perhaps things that you need to know but you don't need to know too much. The reputation of the Metropolitan Police was at stake here, you know, this world-class... Yeah crime-fighting body, great institution. I'm not sure they saw it like that. I don't think until, curiously, until all that came out afterwards, particularly the Sir Richard Enriquez report, I suppose you, if you looked at it at the time, and this was, what, 2016, they might have thought a few mistakes had been made, but I'm not sure. that. I mean, it's very difficult to know whether they'd really understood what a monumental error of judgment or perhaps a monumental failure to do things which a police force should do. I, I just don't know whether they quite saw it in the way that you saw it, and to some extent I saw it. And, you know, we all watch crime fiction and crime fact on the telly. Mistakes are made, and people don't always see the monumental nature of their mistakes until later. The point is, in relation to Operation Midlands, which, is say, ended in March 2016... Yeah. Sir Bernard Hogan Howe, I would say, should have had his top team on that case, his very top team. And you could argue, you could speculate why he didn't, or whether he was involved or whether he wasn't involved. I mean, you can speculate on all that because none of us will know. I mean, the man on the Clapper Normandy bus probably would have said, you need your very best team on these very serious allegations against these very senior members of the establishment. I mean, that would be the view of, the, I suspect, the ordinary public. And therefore... If there's anything in it, they should get their just desserts. And if there's nothing in it, stop it and apologise. When Operation Midland ended in March 2016, I put a question into Scotland Yard asking whether they were going to investigate Nick, because mm -hmm. he still couldn't be named then, for perverting the course of justice. Mm -hmm. And the response on behalf of Mr Rogers came back. There was no evidence mm -hmm. that he had willfully misled the police. I mean, that is, to put it mildly, a bizarre statement given what we know now. In fact, I don't think we even need to have the benefit of hindsight. 
to say that There's is no a evidence. ridiculous assertion because they weren't looking for it. Well, that's what it seemed to be at the time. But they didn't want to look for it. They didn't well, no, want to. No. So this man who had destroyed, all but destroyed, mm. the reputations mm. of living and the dead mm. could have got away with it had Sir Richard Henriquez not done a very thorough report. So he is the ex-High Court judge who yeah. spent several months in 2016, came out on US presidential election I day. I do remember when a it terrible came day because Donald Trump yeah. was uh, elected president. But mm. uh, also a good day in terms of the truth, or more of the truth coming out about Operation Midland because Sir Richard yeah. threw the book at the Met 43 major blunders. Yes. He said that police unlawfully obtained the search warrants for mm. your two homes, Lord Bramall's and Harvey Proctor's. He condemned the use of credible and true. I mean, the blunders, and mm. actually it, they are far worse than that, the blunders he identified, that a judge, Howard Riddle, had been misled. The major blunder of that entire inquiry was the search warrants. From the search warrants, sprayed out most of the rest of the stuff. Mm. I mean, sprayed out all the publicity and all of that. And that, I think, was something that was absolutely shouldn't have been done. It's extraordinary because he recommended that five officers be yeah. investigated for alleged misconduct. Yeah. Two of them, Deputy Assistant Commissioner Steve Rodhouse and Detective Superintendent Kenny MacDonald of credible and true fame, mm. were cleared within a matter of three or four months. Mm. In fact, it was announced by the police watchdog. I remember raising this in the story on budget day. And that's mm. a good day to mm. bury bad news or to bury controversial news. Not only were they cleared of misconduct, they weren't even interviewed over the misconduct allegations. Now, you're talking about cover-up. I mean, that was really extraordinary because Mr Rodhouse had signed off the search warrants. He oversaw it. It was his decision to go ahead. It was his decision to take seriously the man who claimed he had been tortured with wasps and snakes and had his dog kidnapped by the head of security services, blah, blah, blah. He was cleared without even being interviewed. I mean, he must have been laughing all the way home when he learned that, that was happening, and MacDonald as well. An indictment of the police watchdog well, in relation to them? Well, I find it quite extraordinary that anyone who is referred for misconduct is not interviewed. I mean, that's number one. But also, I think my view about misconduct is if some of this case was not misconduct, what is? What is misconduct? It's one of the questions that I raised when I went to see the IOPC report. What is misconduct? There appears to be no definitions whatsoever, but if they are now accused of knowingly misleading a district judge. I mean, why is that not misconduct? What, what is not misconduct not even, about and it? Sir Richard made it clear he felt that was a criminal offence. Exactly. So, it, why, it so even... why is that not investigated properly? And why did the watchdog say that, that they did nothing wrong? Now, that seems to me, again, you go back to the what the ordinary person would think. And it seems to me that what the ordinary person wants out of the IOPC is a strong, independent watchdog who will have the powers to hold the police to account, but at the same time, if you like, help them with, quote, learning points, which is one of their great things. But you can't have something that, from a point of view of a regulator's, you know, from a point of view of the public, that does not do its job 
of being a regulator. I mean, either you're a regulator or you're not a regulator. If you're a handholder and you're a helper of getting yourself better, well, then you're not a, you're not a regulator. After Sir Richard's inquiry, he recommended that an outside force investigate Nick for perverting the course of justice. And the story went very sort of quiet for quite some time. And there was a fear, certainly I think Harvey Proctor feared it, and I don't think he'd mind me saying, that there was going to be an establishment cover-up here, that Northumbria police were going to exonerate Nick and everything would be fine for the police. I mean, I've got a slightly different angle on all this. All the way through the Northumbria investigation, they were unbelievably professional, particularly Detective Chief Inspector Paul Wood. He was courteous, he was professional. He met me in Northallerton Police Station. We talked a little bit about it. And I really believe they did find enough evidence. I think my worry and Harvey Proctor's worry was the CPS wouldn't take it on, on the grounds it might not be in the public interest. That was my worry. Northumbria throughout, although they were very cautious in what they said, all the way through, they've always, they rang me to tell me when Nick had been found in Sweden. They've rung me quite recently about the, the latest developments and they rang me all the way through. And although, of course, when I asked the odd question, I mean, they, they would answer as much as they, he, he answered as much as he could. But of course, you know, being a professional detective, he didn't in, in any way give anything away. So I have nothing but praise for the way in which Northumbria dealt with it, and dealt with me in particular. Mm. It turned out that Nick, a.k.a. Carl Beach, was a paedophile himself, mm. something I discovered through a contact and we at Daily Mail had to go to court to reveal that because it was before he was charged over Operation Midland. I was absolutely staggered when I found out that he was suspected of being a paedophile himself. Mm. This man who had been wined and dined by Tom Watson, the Xaro News Agency, and the BBC that he was a child sex offender, or a suspected one. He was a, a, eventually admitted those offences, including spying on the young boys. What was your reaction to that? I suppose the story had got so bizarre all the way through that this was one more bizarre thing to add to the stuff which says truth is stranger than fiction. Mm. It's not a storyline you would have necessarily put in it three years ago, three years ago from that time. And so it wasn't that I was shocked. I was sort of amazed, actually, because... And, of course, I, I suspect that the police force, the Northumbria police force, were amazed as well. Yeah, I remember putting a call uh, into Tom Watson's office after the Daily Mail revealed that Nick was suspected of child sex offences. He didn't wish to comment. No, I wouldn't imagine so. No. He was going to go on trial for those offences, and then he fled to Sweden. We know he went to Sweden now, but he went on the run just before he was due to stand trial over child sex offences and before the CPS was due to announce whether he'd be charged over Operation Midland. And I, for one, maybe being a pessimist, thought we may never see him again. That Mm. must have been a really difficult time for you as well, wondering, is he going to have the last laugh, this man? Well, you know, I think as time goes on, the story or the effect on yourself 
changes. And I suppose that I would have... I was convinced that the perversion of the course of justice would not go ahead. I mean, I, I didn't think that they, that would happen. Was that, just to make that clear, was that because you'd lost all faith in the justice just, system? No, it wasn't that. It's just that I, you, you know, that the story is such an odd one and such a strange, I mean, you couldn't make up this story. And it had twists and turns and twists and turns. And I just wondered, and I never thought that the perversion case would come to the light of day. The other charges that were due to come up in Worcester, I thought would go ahead. But then, of course, the next bizarre twist and turn was not turning up to that trial. Perversion is quite a difficult thing to to prove anyway. I mean, it's not an easy... It's a very unusual case anyway, the big perversion cases. Mm -hmm. I mean, this would be a huge perversion case, and it was. It was one of the biggest ones. And so I I suppose in my pessimistic self, you know, life had moved on and maybe I'd... And it got a bit further with what I was trying to do. And I didn't think it would go any further. So not, nobody was more astonished than me when I learned that it was going to go ahead. And then, of course, all the next events that happened and the tracking down of Mr Beach in um, Scandinavia, which I think was quite a sophisticated operation. It was sophisticated, but on the other hand, he made it easier for them because he was... Was using, I think he's using credit cards well, and stuff. So, but they, look, they found him, but, and I but, guess that I mean, restored but, your faith. There was, a, well, there was an international effort, and he was found. And yes, was I mean, back. That, no, I, I, and I took off my hat to the to the Swedish police, and no doubt to the cooperation of the, the Northumbria police. And then, of course, there was the thing like the European search warrant. And, you know, mm. they kept me informed about every step of that. They rang me. I was in Crete at the time about the, the apprehension, I think, or whatever whatever word was used. And then as time went on about some of the other things and when he'd be leaving Sweden and etc. And then we talked about whether he'd get bail or not. And I said, well, you know, from my experience as a magistrate, I don't believe he will get bail. But, you know, they had to prepare a case, the Northumbria police, for objecting to bail. And it was all of those things. I mean, clearly, anyone who's jumped bail doesn't get bail. But I just felt that they did their very, very best, and they did it in a way that I, it was impressive to me, more so than the actions of the Metropolitan Police. Yeah, they did. I mean, the Northumbria Police, headed by a former Met officer, Steve Ashman, yeah. it, was, it was a real uh, poison chalice of a case for them. Well, it and was they a completely, difficult... completely showed up the Met. Well, a difficult case for them, you know, from a very different police force with mm. a very different uh, mm. geographic area. Yeah. But I just was very impressed by the way in which they dealt with me yeah. and no doubt they dealt with, with the facts as they found them. Then. When I saw the charge sheet for Carl Beach, because yeah. you know, actually even when he was charged, he was on the run mm. and he couldn't be named. He wasn't named until he got back to the UK later that year when he was found. When I saw the charges, you know, that he'd been on the internet researching his victims and there'd been fraud involved, you know, it was a really thorough job. But... Going into that trial, the evidence was really strong. The opening took two days by Tony Badenoch QC. A really strong case, but Carl Beach pleaded not guilty uh, to everything. He, his his defence was effectively, it's true. It's true, and as ludicrous as that was, that was his case. I wouldn't say I felt sorry for his lawyers because they were getting paid for the work. Mm. But it was a laughable defence. Mm. The trial went on for several weeks, and he made some hurtful comments, didn't he, yeah. about Leon? And also, it yeah. was clear that he took a sadistic pleasure in the hurt mm. he caused him. I wonder how you felt about that. 
well, I couldn't even contemplate going to the court as I was asked if I'd like to. Because I think for myself and for Harvey Proctor and for Lord Bramwell, who of course he was alive at the time, it was another thrust of the knife. And I found that trial, I found particularly difficult, actually, and, and I tried not to read too much about it because, you know, this was five years later or whatever. And I think that slightly sort of sadistic pleasure that anyone who is found guilty but has pleaded not guilty, particularly with that defence, but to go through all the evidence again, I think was very hard for the people who'd been accused, who'd you know, begun to perhaps put aside some of the, um, you know, the hurt that they'd felt previously. It was just it was a double piece of hurt, and I felt particularly sorry for Lord Bramwell who was well into his 90s and not a particularly well man, to have to have to have all that as well to contend with, even if he didn't watch it or read it himself. You know, others around him would. I mean, he would later say in his victim impact statement yeah. that the wounds of Operation Midland were far worse than what he suffered yeah. on the battlefield. Yeah. Because those sort of wounds, are, you know, they are invisible wounds and wounds that are not justified. Mm. You know, battlefield wounds are completely different. No, you're, you're fighting an enemy. It also emerged at the trial that a confirmation that Nick had been in touch with Tom Watson mm. and that Tom Watson had put pressure on the Met to take him seriously mm. and also that he had bought himself a flashy sports car mm. with the money from criminal injuries compensation, another sort of subplot to this, how easy it is to get criminal injuries compensation. Indeed. But... <laughs> I mean, I didn't really think the verdicts were going to be in doubt, and the jury just mm-hmm. took uh, took took a few hours to come back yeah. and convict him of mm. of everything. The real shock, I think, was the length of the sentence. Yeah, I think I agree. Eight, Eighteen years. Mm-hmm. There was gasps mm-hmm. in the public gallery mm-hmm. and in the press box at the length of that because it was it was a record. I mean, he got many many more years than the notorious Wearside hoaxer in the Yorkshire Ripper case. I mean, the judge clearly thought very carefully about the sentence and indeed about the summing up. And, of course, if I'm writing thinking, one set of offences was consecutive and not concurrent, mm. which is the difference. So if I'm writing thinking, the perversion was 15. Still a, far bigger than any other previous indeed, sentence. Indeed, indeed. But, of course, you have to take into account there is no discount for pleading guilty. He'd skipped bail. and That is a criminal offence in itself. And so, in a way, there was not a shred of mitigation, not one shred, no remorse. Therefore, the judge, I think, decided, and it may or may not have been an exemplary sentence, but it was absolutely, there was not a shred of mitigation. And if you don't have a shred of mitigation, nothing. You can mm. take a year off or two years off. Mm. He was certainly using the maximum because you know, there are maximums to what you can give for any particular set of offences. And I don't know whether 15 is the maximum for perversion. Mm. Probably Mm. is. Uh, And what really struck me, Lady Britton, was that at the trial, no senior Met officer came up Mm. to sit in the public gallery. I think they had a lawyer there Mm. because they knew what was coming. Mm. More litigation. Mm. Harvey Proctor got half a million pounds plus costs later that year. Mm -hmm. But there's no senior officer there. There's There's no leadership there. It was a case which the Met's hierarchy wanted to forget or ignore mm. as much as they mm. could not be associated with. You know, it was a very clear impression mm. that I got. Were you happy with 18 years? <laughs> well, one would hope it was a just sentence. 
But it was, I think, a justifiable and a just sentence. I'm Stephen Wright, and you've been listening to a Mail Plus True Crime Special, a series of interviews with Lady Britain, widow of the former Home Secretary, Leon Britton.